Hello, Secret Movie Clubbers. Welcome to Secret Movie Club Podcast 109. Today, we are talking about John Huston's Treasure of the Sierra Madre, classic Hollywood. This movie was programmed because a Secret Movie Club team member Alex Olivier actually chose Maltese Falcon gave me a list of five. We did Maltese Falcon, and then we just paired it with Treasure of the Sierra Madre. Uh, who is with us today? Oh, hey, it's Daniel. Hey, it's me, Connor Lloyd Cruz, the people's champion. Hello, America. I'm still here. Hi, it's Alex Olivier. And I'm Craig, the founder, programmer of Secret Movie Club. We're all kind of struggling today because Edwin, for the first time, maybe in 109 podcasts, I've never seen this. He's in a contemplative down mood. This week, Friday, June 17th, when you hear this, we are going to be doing a 35 millimeter print of Jean Cocteau's Beauty and the Beast. This is part of our surreal summer. This is an incredible movie. It's one of those rare films that was both meant for a very commercial audience. It's the French fairy tale Beauty and the Beast you may know best from Disney. But it's actually also filled with Cocteau, who is a very famous avant-garde filmmaker and French poet and rebel in many ways. It's filled with his trademark surreal imagery, which probably pairs together great with a fairy tale. And we've got it on 35 millimeter. Saturday, we are doing a Father's Day special at the Million Dollar Theater. We are doing Taken which I've always loved as a Father's Day movie because it's about the Neesons, Liam Neeson, going to save his daughter in France. And then uh, we're following that up with just a catch-all Father's Day movie, the 1987 Predator on 35mm, the original. Don't give your dad a tie. Don't make him breakfast. Bring him to two action movies. You'll remember this experience forever. And then Thursday, we're doing a Sidney Lumet-directed, Frank Pearson-written, Dee Dee Allen-edited, Al Pacino starring double feature of Serpico and Dog Day Afternoon on 35. And that was actually programmed because I wanted to do a little mini series on movies that I think are edited amazingly. We're also doing Battleship Potemkin, which is already passed. And then we're doing Two by Dee Dee Allen, who I'm obsessed with, maybe my favorite American editor of all time. As always, check out our schedule at secretmovieclub.com. Go to Eventbrite to get tickets. Write us at community at secretmovieclub.com. Send Edwin and Valentine and uh, make him feel good, know he's loved, and let's move on. Just a few weeks ago, we did a double header on 35 of the Maltese Falcon and Treasure of Sierra Madre for our projectionist Alex Olivier's birthday. Alex programmed those. And Alex is also a writer. And Alex, you were telling me the script you tend to, or the style or genre you have written a number of things in is noir. Did I remember that correctly? Yeah, absolutely. Either I'll do straight noir or things that are very much in the kind of family of noir. And so it makes all the sense in the world why you'd program Maltese Falcon. Both Maltese and Treasure are written and directed, really adapted, you should say, by John Huston. Both star Humphrey Bogart. And even though Treasure of the Sierra Madre is not what you would call a straight noir, uh, it's more of a sort of action-adventure rip-roaring yarn, which Houston would do again much later in his career with The Man Who Would Be King. It certainly has noir elements in it, specifically its bleak view of humanity <laughs> and human nature in a lot of ways. But Alex, I want to start with you. You were really, you know, coming out talking about how you were affected at seeing Maltese Falcon on 35. Yeah. So the print that we had uh, that we showed of Maltese Falcon was a little beat up. And I know that <laughs> when I'm in the booth and I know when you're in the booth, we tend not to enjoy when that is the case. But when I'm in the audience, it kind of really suited the movie 
because it's kind of a gritty, scratchy print for a kind of a gritty, dark movie. I remember I had the same experience watching uh, last year when we showed Assault on Precinct 13. That was a really beat up print. And I thought it was just perfect for that movie. A little faded, too. Yeah, exactly. So the same was the case for The Maltese Falcon when I watched that. And I felt like it enhanced the movie watching experience for me, you know, really tremendously, just due to the fact that it kind of almost visually reflected the movie's tone a little more profoundly. (laughs) The Maltese Falcon is my favorite John Huston. It's also just one of my favorites of all time. But Treza Sierra Madre is excellent as well. The thing that I guess I was struck most by watching them back to back is (laughs) it's almost like how you were always talking about with Fassbinder when Fassbinder was our director of the year, how he sort of holds everyone accountable and there's no one who uh, gets away with anything. Same for Houston. Yeah, exactly. You see really every character in all of these movies in like the most objective light. Both of the movies kind of have like really bittersweet endings. They're really bleak and dark in a lot of ways, but also like kind of hopeful and optimistic in also other ways. You just see like really all sides of the spectrum of everything in both of these films. If you've never seen Treasure of the Sierra Madre audience, that and Asphalt Jungle are my two favorite Houstons. It's about three down-on-their-luck Americans who find themselves stranded in a Mexican town, Tampico. One of them, Walter Houston, John Houston's dad, is an experienced miner who just has sort of like, even though he's still in a flop house in what appears to be his 60s, he says, I'd go out there again to mine gold. Bogart and Tim Holt overhear him, and they all pool the resources together to go mine gold in the Mexican wilderness, and they actually strike it. They strike it rich, basically because Walter Houston, being the experienced miner, knows the mountain to do it. And sure enough, just as Walter Houston and the Flophouse predicted, even though they all got along at the beginning when they had nothing— As they start to gather this gold, they become suspicious, distrustful, especially Bogart. And so the movie really becomes this fascinating adventure moral tale about human nature and greed. But it's also, in a very Houstonian way, this just rip-roaring adventure in Mexico. They're bandits. Who who wants to talk about treasure next? Daniel is wearing a CGI Zorro's mask and Connor is wearing a CGI fedora. He's the bandit. Okay. I'm the detective. <laughs> Edwin, treasure of the Sierra Madre. That was okay. All right, Daniel. <laughs> I like how Bogart just asked the John Houston like for spare change for like three times in a row until the last time he said, uh, "This is the last time. Give me something. This is the last time. Give me something again." Uh, I thought it was a pretty fine picture. You know, it's uh, not something I would revisit again. But I do see the PTA elements, especially the Bogart character and the beginning of There Will Be Blood because he is dressed exactly like Bogart and There Will Be Blood. From what you said, he watched the movie 30 times. And next thing you know, he basically took some of the elements. Well, mainly the beginning of the movie where he's actually mining for silver, I think. And that whole scene just feels like Treasure Sharon Madre oh, right off the bat. And Danny Lewis sounds and is acting like John Huston, and it's insane because it's really funny. I love Walter Huston in this movie. He's really good. He won the Best Supporting Actor for that. There's all this trivia around it. Isn't it like one of the few movies that like a father and son both won an Oscar for or something? Absolutely. I think you're right. And Walter Huston would maybe be the equivalent. It's really hard to make a one-for-one, one, but like Harrison Ford 
or Anthony Hopkins. But Walter Houston was a major American movie star for 20 or 30 years. John Houston is kind of like Sofia Coppola is to Francis Ford Coppola. John Houston was his son, but John Renoir is the same way. I was thinking about this. John Renoir was the son of the famous painter Pierre Renoir. And John Renoir is one of my favorite directors of all time. So you have to be talented to then build a career off of that. But uh, Walter Houston anyway was very nervous to play the part without his teeth because he was very vain. And his son was like, no, dad, you're like a down on his luck flophouse minor. You got to do it without your teeth. And Walter Houston was like, OK. And he ugged it up for his son. And he it's such a great character. This is maybe my favorite Bogart performance. I'm honestly surprised more people didn't cast him as the villain because I think he has the everyman aesthetic down pat. But he also he has the look of someone I would believe would absolutely undermine and betray me. Um, and he plays this role with such, I guess, desperation's the word. Like I, I love the gradual fogs. I, I think at the beginning, it's it's very unclear, and his motivations are catered toward hero and his kind of progressive fall to what I would maybe consider the villain are really effective because you understand that this sort of kind of paranoia that he's going through makes complete sense in like the arc of his character. My favorite bit about this, the little fun fact, is I found this movie because as a kid, I was really obsessed with the Weird Al movie UHF. <laughs> and UHF yeah. had all these lines of dialogue that were little bits to old movies, of course. And I didn't know them because I was a child. But my grandpa thought this one was funny. I think they says there's like a section in UHF where they have badgers and the host says like badgers. We don't need no stinking badgers. And he laughed so hard at it. I didn't think it was funny. So he made me watch this movie. And that was like the connection. So thank you, UHF. But no, I think it's it's great. It's tough. Like the film school aesthetic of things because it's such a, a well-regarded thing. So when it, the hype lives up to it, I always find that very satisfying. And few things have captured this obsessive, this sort of focus on greed and corruption as well. And so entertaining. I don't know what my favorite John Houston movie is necessarily, but Treasure of the Sierra Madre, it lives up to the hype. My only issue in, in rewatching and revisiting is I forgot. And I think it's kind of a trait and maybe we can talk about it with classic Hollywood stuff, but they really lean into like single kind of stereotype ideals of countries. Like in this, Mexico is portrayed as like, these big teeth bandits that are super cartoony. I actually disagree with that. Normally, I, I know what you would mean, but I actually think Houston goes out of his way to show that the bandits don't represent all of Mexico. I guess it's because it's the only depiction you really see is is the... But what about the villagers and the federales? But that's but then becomes like, it's like this fairy tale land I always kind of felt with this. And I don't know, it was one of those things I guess caught on that it felt like that weird Hollywood relic where we still kind of do it because we, we love to paint foreign countries in like a single grade of color nowadays in terms of like color correction which is really weird <laughs> it felt kind of cartoony to a degree and maybe the juxtaposition is supposed to be on the bandits you meet versus the people you meet down the line but i was that took me by surprise this time i didn't remember feeling that last time one of the strengths of treasure of the sumadre is exactly what you just said which is it plays a little like a tragedy for Bogart's character, Fred C. Dobbs. But even though they're very different actors, I think that Bogart had that thing that Toshiro Mifuni had, which is that Bogart could play good, bad, or anti-hero. Jack Nicholson has it as well. Gene Hackman has it. Brando even has it. But very few actors can do that, where they could be the hero of the movie, they could be the villain of the movie, or they could be the anti-hero of the movie. And I've heard a lot of actors say that the best position to be in as an actor is to be a character actor who gets famous, which is what Bogart was. Bogart was a character actor in the 30s who got famous because then people will accept you as anything versus like Brad Pitt 
or Cary Grant or, you know, even Grace Kelly, where the audience wasn't really ever one to see Grace Kelly as a villain, let's say. If Cary Grant and Cary Grant could play it all, too, but they didn't really want to see Cary Grant as a villain, which is why Hitchcock had to change the end of Suspicion, if you've ever seen Suspicion. But Bogey, he could be an antihero, could be Daniel. I think by today's standards, I totally get what you're saying. Is Treasure of the Sierra Madre Roma or Itu Mama Tambien or Sin Nombre? Absolutely not. Or El Norte, for that matter. But I, I guess I would just push back in the sense that viewed from a 1947, 48 context, I was stunned at how much of the movie plays in Spanish without subtitles. He allows the Mexicans to speak their language. And when you listen to the dialogue, it's very complicated, humane dialogue. And the bandits are represented as bandits, but then the federales are represented totally differently. And then those villagers who come at the end and have Walter Houston save the boy are represented completely differently. So I didn't get the feeling that I was looking at a stereotypical one-dimensional Mexico whatsoever. In fact, I would argue that the worst character in the movie is Bogart. So the white people are represented as interlopers in a country they don't completely understand. I wasn't considering the villagers you meet later. I just think the part of the bandits in the realm of like a pretty grounded thing felt a little bit cartoony, but I guess you sort of do need that in the context of the 1948 worldview that it probably was important that there is a clear difference between the evil and the people that are just existing, that are living their life in their culture. Well, I would argue, too, from a writing standpoint and a Shakespearean standpoint, the movie really makes the point. And again, I know I'm bringing my my worldview into this, but it makes the point that like attracts like, you know, Walter Houston, who is wiser and basically tries to behave ethically eventually connects with the villagers. It's no surprise that Bogart, who loses his morals and ethics, eventually connects with the bandits who also have lost their morals and ethics. So I think there's a, a narrative storytelling element of that as well. But I hadn't seen it before. I liked it. I um, have a hard time sometimes with classic Hollywood. Like, none of my favorite movies are really before the 50s. I was looking at my list, and I think it's an aesthetic thing when I'm watching the movies, because when I think back about them, like, the stories are always so good. It's like kind of how I feel about Shakespeare, where I'm like, I really like the stories of Shakespeare, but when I'm reading it, I'm like, this is like Moon Man talk. <laughs> I don't I don't understand what is going on. This isn't that exactly, but it is like a thing where aesthetically there wasn't like a lot of scenes that really like popped super for me. The big sequence that did, probably the best scene is when Bogey, after he thinks he kills his buddy and goes back and the flames of the fire become like the flames of hell and it keeps cutting to his friend who I had thought who's like moving who I was thinking at first it was like a psychological thing that it was bogey thinking about the friend like still being alive and coming to get him or something it's a really good solid movie maybe I'll be like PTA and I'll watch it 20 more times and I'll be like this is the best thing in the world big takeaway for me is just thinking about how many uh things it influenced namely i, I brought up a, a simple plan oh man what a great point all like heists gone wrong movies feel like they borrow a little bit or the grandchildren of sierra madre on the the wikipedia page for the novel for a simple plan under the critical reception the chicago tribune described the book as the treasure of the sierra madre like comparing it specifically 
So I was the Chicago Tribune backs me up on that one. I also liked when Bogey said that's the kind of sugar Papa likes. That should be <laughs> the most famous line for this from this movie. I don't understand why it isn't. Also, randomly, I'm doing a fit of fan casting right now. 1940s Batman movie. You just gave me the idea talking a minute ago, Daniel. Bogey for Harvey Dent. I wish we could have had Think more like real dastardly dark bogey stuff because he's so good at that anti-hero stuff one of his most unsettling roles ever is in nicholas ray's in a lonely place that's a movie that as much as people talk about it i don't think it gets talked about enough for how modern it still is the movie for people who don't know is almost a semi-autobiographical david lynchian dark story about a screenwriter played by bogart who may or may not have killed a woman, and then he gets in a romance with Gloria Graham, who was in a real-life romance with Nicholas Ray, and his violent, ambiguous, dysfunctional, misogynistic tendencies, misanthropic tendencies come out, and the whole movie, you're like, oh my goodness, you gotta get out of this. Like, what is going on with him? And yet, it's a very empathetic portrait of a very damaged person, but it's a very unsettling film, and Bogey commits to it completely. And the thing is that Bogey played bad guys in the 30s. I'm a huge Jimmy Cagney fan, and when you see Bogey in, like, the Roaring Twenties, which is one that I love, so it's weird. He was able to take all those bad guys and I think kind of bake, almost like Jack Nicholson did after his work in the 60s, bake it into his heroes in a way that made it uh, really interesting. I'd also highly recommend pairing, I did this during the pandemic. I think we watched Spike Lee's The Five Bloods, and I think The Five Bloods and Church of Sigur Madre are a great double feature. There's a lot of really cool overlap between them. And I think with The Five Bloods leading into a lot of its race stuff, maybe that's why when I wrote my 2020 thing about it, where I was drawing connections from, but it's a very cool. Classic Hollywood is way, way too big. Uh, I'm regretting that that was the frame I created, but... You're asking the wrong guy for that, because I haven't seen any <laughs> Classic Hollywood. But let's dig into that. That's what's so important. Why not? It didn't really hit me. The only thing that does hit me, what I consider... I just, there might be a sin what I'm about to say right now, but for me, Classic Hollywood was like more towards the 50s. That just counts. Craig, when you say classic Hollywood, I think of the 10s and 20s to like the 60s. Is that where it would land? I would define classic Hollywood as the solidification of the studios at the beginning of the sound era through the collapse of the studio system in the early 60s. So classic Hollywood would roughly be from, in my definition, roughly from 1929 or 30 to about 1961. 30s, 40s, 50s, more or less. There is one movie I did see, what I do consider classic Hollywood. It's a movie called Blackboard Jungle. That movie rocks. Probably one of the best things I've ever seen. Another example, Harvey's a good one. I'm, I'm, I'm going to put in monster movies because I consider those classic Hollywood. They are, All right. for sure. Right. I, I consider that classic Hollywood because no one's going to stop me, damn it. All right. Oh, he's back. Look, see? <laughs> It was only temporary. Singing in the Rain. That, to me, is the greatest Hollywood movie of all time and the greatest musical ever made in the history of motion pictures. Why is Singing in the Rain something you respond to? It was only made four years after Treasure of the Sierra Madre. So why is singing something you you love? Treasure, you're like, ah, it was okay. As you said, Bogart is just kind of an anti-villain and... I'm just used to seeing Bogart as like the good guy, you know? 
But with singing in the rain, it just responds to you right quickly. Like you know what you're going in for, you know you're gonna be entertained, and you know you're gonna come out singing and dancing. It's just one of the most brilliant musicals of all time, man. Like other musical that came before it, singing in the rain is the goldmine of great Hollywood movies and musicals for all that. And inspired so many things from Clockwork no, 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 Orange no, no, to Scorsese. No, 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 no. They're, 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 they're stealing from singing in the rain. I can name one big stealer, and that's La La Land. It can never be what singing in the rain was, all right? He's back. You're like Newman at the end of <laughs> Color and Money right now. Maybe you won't agree with me, Edwin, but... I wonder if it's a situation with certain older films where my kind of tastes lie in certain eras in terms of what I really respond to. And then when things are outside of that era, it's very like singular things that I really respond to. No, I'm the same way. The stuff I really love tends to be from like the 60s and onward and there's like some stuff in the 50s i'm sure there's going to be like a movie i see from the 40s that i'm like oh that's great that's one of my favorite movies but the stuff i had written down to talk about are both 50s movies and i think kind of late 50s movies is a uh, 12 angry men oh great movie i should have mentioned that one super simple really almost like a play i think that one's just so well written and so relies on the story that I love it. The stuff I love the most in like the classic Hollywood era is uh, it's Hitchcock stuff. I think his stuff seemed very like ahead of its time in a lot of ways in terms of like style. And I respond to a lot of the more like pure noir things because I think that as well feels a little ahead of its time in terms of the type of storytelling it was doing in terms of the darkness and the seediness talk about classic hollywood i know daniel kind of mentioned the scope between like the 20s to like the 60s but if you look over that whole time you know that's like the golden age of noir the maltese falcon was like as you said craig kind of a proto noir in the fact that world war ii hadn't really occurred in its full form yet so you know you had maltese falcon laying the groundwork but over the course of that era you had, you know, Raymond Chandler was writing in his heyday. James M. Cain was writing in his heyday. You had the Maltese Falcon sort of beginning it all the way through the classics like Double Indemnity, The Big Sleep, you know, The Asphalt Jungle. But then you had later noirs like Touch of Evil, which was very much an evolved form of noir, but is still, you know, sort of the same era. So it's interesting to witness kind of the evolution of the form and the medium over this decade or couple decades, I should say. And uh, you can kind of say the same about Westerns as well, because you had, you know, Henry Fonda Westerns, you had John Ford Westerns, but then you started, you know, getting into things like Rio Bravo, and that ushered in the sort of the spaghettis that would follow after that. So it's really cool to see just how quickly everything was developing during that time in Hollywood. We almost should eventually need to like break down and do more specific podcasts about these things, you know? Oh, we will. It'd be fun to take like a general decade time frame or a year. We didn't have cable growing up and there was a stint where we did. And the only thing that was interesting was we had Turner Classic Movies. Oh, the only channel I would need if they put me in a spaceship. It ended up being cool. I did not grow up like with the Simpsons, Family Guys. I just, like missed all that. My friends were all into that. And just made fun of me. And that's cool. That rules, honestly. It was great for me. I went on Letterboxd and I just sorted my watch stuff by the lowest amount of logs. So I'm going to be annoying and just share a list without many thoughts of just some stuff that I think rules from this era. 
the first one, probably the most well-known. Maybe I think my favorite Hitchcock movie, Notorious, I think is up there. I did George Stevens' Gunga Den from 1939. That's a great one. Rules. Such a good movie. Proto Temple of Doom, which people need to point out to you. They just took Gunga Den and then just re-scrambled it for Temple of Doom. It rules. Never seen it on the big screen. David Lean's Brief Encounters is one of my favorite movies, but it pairs super well with The Passionate Friends, which is another, it's like a late 40s. Fritz Lang's Scarlet Street, I think, is really something in his filmography that deserves some more attention. It rules. It's got a great performance by um, Edward G. Robinson. It's just fantastic. And then Anthony Mann's Raw Deal is a killer. I think that's a noir, right? That's one of my favorites. Some of these I haven't seen in a while, so it's not fair to say it. In the realm of like boxing, the setup by Robert Wise is great. That's a dynamite picture. And then Raoul Walsh's White Heat is another favorite noir. And then my last noir, again, a lot of great noir stuff, is Drive a Crooked Road by Richard Quinn was I think the lowest one. There's three fans on Letterboxd. I don't know what that means, but a whopping 83 minutes. Yes, please. <laughs> That's great. There's, there's a lot of great stuff. But I, I also get there's a mindset you kind of need. There's, there's always a vibe you need for certain eras of things. So I, I completely respect when it doesn't vibe because it it's a very different experience to like the thing we're used to currently. I want to clarify. It's not that I dislike these things. It's that I don't love them. I don't feel them in my bones the way I do later things. I love movies that I hate sometimes because I find out for me as a filmmaker what I'm hating and how I want to avoid that in the things that I'm making. Not because I think it's necessarily a bad thing, but it is a decision in directing and writing and editing that works against what I find enjoyable maybe. So I think it's valuable even if other people don't. And it's weird sometimes forcing yourselves like film school's whole approach of like, well, you have to watch these classics I think ruins it for some people because it doesn't feel like this experience you're getting. It feels like homework. And that, I think, then just creates a, a negative atmosphere to classic cinema. One of the things that I respond so much in the Houstonian voice is what Alex said, his weird ability to be pretty clear-eyed about the world in a way that most filmmakers throughout the history of filmmaking just can't because they have a worldview. Or... I've often found that the cynical filmmakers are not for me. I also understand why the blisteringly optimistic without acknowledging the incredible difficulties of life, why those filmmakers can't work for people who have a really rough life experience. And Houston is one of those really weird guys in the best sense of the word who seems simultaneously very clear-eyed, understands very much how we often fail ourselves, and yet seems to love life. And it's a wonderful, I think, a wonderful contradictory voice that powers almost every one of his films. And he's a writer. I think in the end, I tend to gravitate towards the directors who have a strong hand in the writing because they understand how actually story itself is the greatest cinematic element. That's my opinion, It's that story itself is the greatest cinematic element. So when you get a Billy Wilder or a David Lynch or a Jean Renoir and Akira Kurosawa who are co-writing their scripts almost constantly, you know the editing and the directing and the acting and everything will come from that, but you know they know the twist, they know character, they know theme, they know motif. And I just think Houston is just one of those filmmakers who is amazing at it. And really got away with murder, literally, <laughs> but also sort of cinematically, because his output in this 40s 
is markedly darker than everybody else, almost everybody else who was working in the mainstream. You know, if I were to look at my favorite filmmakers, they're all kind of a great marriage of style and sort of substance <laughs> for whatever that's worth to say. But uh, it's as Craig was saying, you know, the story is the most important thing and it's so great. But like noir is also so ultra stylized and so like almost experimental with its form. And I think it was kind of world changing to me to watch it as a young age and see that this was, you know, possible in filmmaking and not just it had to be one or the other. Because you do have a lot of either dry and bare bones, sometimes intentionally so, sometimes it suits it more, but you'll have a lot of dry and bare bones stories that are really great, but are not necessarily the most like visually compelling. Or you'll have something that's like only God forgives or something that's just visually stunning, but it has like no substance behind it. I mean, that's, <laughs> I'm opening up a different discussion, but that's uh, to illustrate what I'm saying. So noir was my introduction of just like a beautiful hybrid of everything that's great about like kind of the best of both worlds. And just the fact that the subject matter was always something that I found super interesting and compelling as well. It's always, you know, some horrible crime and some mystery and you want to know what's going on. And these characters are always damaged and flawed. And the just kind of tropes of the genre didn't seem like tropes to me. They're just something that I want to live in and be around always. Uh, cinematically, that is, of course, not in real life. Pop culture, final thoughts. Edwin. Yo. Pop culture, final thoughts. Edwin. <laughs> uh, I saw a lot of pictures uh, this week. A lot of cool pictures. I uh, saw a Hong Kong kung fu movie called Pedicab Driver, as I like to call it, the kung fu version of Taxi Driver. I was going through the Criterion channel, and I, and I watched this movie called uh, a, a Cry in the Dark, which is a very, very, very cool movie. It takes place in Australia. A dingo ate my baby. Yeah, yeah, about that. And it's, it's pretty wild. For some reason, that was the catchphrase when I did theater as a kid. Meryl Streep, do you want to tell them the story? Everyone would just walk around going, a dingo ate my baby. Yeah, the, the, the story is about how they a family goes on like a cabbie trip, and next thing you know, uh, she puts her baby asleep, but a, a dingo comes out of nowhere and like, takes her kid. And they just whole like conspiracy about it like I, they think that the family killed their daughter but in reality it was actually a dinko that ate it but uh yeah it's, it's the way it's shot is this yeah, god it's incredible it's just like one of the most surreal courtroom personality life movie i've ever seen ever it's just it's just insane because it, it keeps going and going and going like it's like stress yeah, I highly recommend watching that. It's on the Criterion channel. And then I saw the Chip and Dale Rescue Rangers movie. That was cool. I liked it. As did my children. And when I passed the TV, I was like, why do Chip and Dale sound like Seth Meyers and uh, John Mulhaney? Because they are Seth Meyer and John Mulhaney now. It's, it's John Mulhaney and Andy Samberg. Speaking of classic movies, I watched uh, Johnny Mnemonic a couple of weeks ago. That movie is incredible trash. Check it out. You can find me at twitch.tv slash Connor Cruz and watch me play D&D Tuesday evenings at twitch.tv slash NerdHala. Yeah, it's about cyberspace. Check it out. I went to the theater to see a film, Alex Garland's new film, Men. I'm very neutral. I can't figure out. I've thought about it a ton, but I also thought it was sometimes maybe intentionally very silly, but also some of the imagery was so wild that I can't get it out of my head. I'm more curious to read what P. 
people think because I think there's a ton of interesting like especially biblical stuff to it but I'm also very curious like this is one of those things where like it's a dude writing and directing a thing that's trying to comprehend with the concepts of surprise male toxicity in a movie called men but I'm very curious to see how how women react to that writing because I think there's in making your main character a woman and then sort of deciding her fate by the men she encounters in it I, I think there's a lot of interesting conversation around it and I'd be curious to see if if people especially women think it's it's successful but it's it's visually stunning and I thinking about it a week later so that should say what it says since you were talking about Alex Garland I guess I want to plug devs even though it's not something I've watched recently, it's just awesome. I never hear people ever refer to it or mention that they've seen it. It was an Alex Garland TV show that came out a couple of years ago during the lockdown, meaty part of the lockdown with Nick Offerman. It's about like uh, free will, determinism, and that kind of stuff. All that wonderful Alex Garland sci-fi. So I think everyone should watch that. Talented chap, that man. <laughs> He's all right. <laughs> I will just, our secret movie club writer, uh, Matt Olson, who writes blogs for us and kindly listens to the podcast, sent me a joke text, but it wasn't really a joke. He was totally right, where I was talking about writer-directors in classic Hollywood, and I mentioned how Houston and Orson Welles and only a few others really staked out. And he was like, what about Preston Sturges? Like, Preston Sturges predated those guys by almost 10 years. And he's absolutely right, and it brought up, a very important thing, which is that, and I've heard this in other podcasts, is that, you know, we record these podcasts and we love movies, but, you know, my memory and how I remember things and state things are very flawed. And I shouldn't be speaking like it's fact, like I'm professorally, you know, issuing fact about something. You know, once he mentioned Preston Sturges, I thought about, well, wait, what about Buster Keaton or Charlie Chaplin or any of the people in the silent era who were, or D.W. Griffith or whoever, who were clearly writing and directing their own stuff. So I need to check myself before I wreck myself when I make these uh, proclamations about, you know, this, that, or the other thing. And if you've never seen Preston Sturges, and I hope we do a podcast on him, you know, he's probably most famously known for Sullivan's Travels, but he created like a Preston Sturges universe way before the MCU. Characters would reappear in his movies, The Great McGinty, Hail the Conquering Hero, uh, The Miracle at Morgan's Creek, Unfaithfully Yours, The Palm Beach Story. Uh, the Coen brothers, their comedies are hugely influenced by Preston Sturges. And Matt was just saying Preston Sturges was unique during that time. Studio heads did not like to let writers direct their movies. They really wanted to balkanize the whole process. I think probably so that one, they could get the best product, but two, they could also control everybody. That's a very leader-like move is don't let anyone else know about the other departments. But, you know, Preston Sturges broke that mold early, early on. So Matt, thank you for correcting me. And I hope people who listen to this podcast will write in and be like, you're wrong. And we'll record corrections. I want to admit I'm wrong. I want to learn new things and be reminded. So uh, there you go. All right. It was wonderful to have you guys. As we said, this week, come see Beauty and the Beast. And tomorrow, come see Taken and Predator. Next week, we do Serpico and Dog Day Afternoon. You can find out everything we do on secretmovieclub.com. Write us at community at secretmovieclub.com. This episode was edited by our chief creative content officer, Connor Lloyd Cruz. Alex Olivier, uh, it was wonderful to have you. Well, thank you, Craig. My pleasure. 
Bears. Our next podcast, uh, Secret Movie Club Podcast 110, will be about John Hughes' classic Ferris Bueller's Day Off and the perfect movie, which maybe we're going to accept or deconstruct and tear down. I do hold up Ferris as a perfect film, but we'll look into what that means. Until then, everybody have a great week. Thank you all for being on the show. I love you, family. I'll see you guys in a week. See you. And then let's uh, do a photo. So that like a Mario? You said let's uh, do a photo. <laughs> I love, I love, I love speaking the Italian ways. <laughs>